The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find more information about Jason at www.jasonderoshi.com. We are wrapping up our study of Isaiah this week and next, Lord willing. Today we're going to finalize the seven mountaintop texts that I've chosen to focus on, all of which are interinterpreting to help portray for us this intrusion of new covenant mess- uh, hope in the Messiah. So, there's an all-readiness and a not-yetness to this growing mountain, and it's, it's more like this, this intrusion of the future into the present through the coming of Christ who will return at the end of the age. So I, I turned this, this image on its head last week, that's what we're looking at here. New Age, New Covenant. New Age, the New Covenant, and New Creation, which has already intruded in the person of Christ and is increasingly becoming more and more realized. We're going to start today in the fourth mountaintop text, Isaiah 56. So just reviewing the text we've looked at here, the high temple mountain of peace to which the nations stream in the latter days, the garden worship center made holy and overshadowed by God's tabernacling presence, the blossoming garden of peace that stands at the center of the spirit-empowered king's global rule, the mountain center of global praise and celebration where death is swallowed up forever. So now we're going to look at the house of prayer where eunuchs will enjoy a name and once foreigners will be servant priests of Yahweh. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you that you Take those that feel like outcasts and make them sons and daughters. Those that were once on the outskirts, you bring them home. Thank you that in a sea of curseness, you are already shining light into darkness. And one day the darkness will be no more. Comfort weary souls this morning. Be our strength and our help as we put our trust in you. Thank you for your word that is an ever-present voice in our wilderness declaring the greatness of you, the faithfulness of your presence, the caringness of your soul. Thank you that we can trust you as a God who does not give serpents when we ask for bread. It's hard sometimes to keep trusting, Lord. So we ask that you would fan our faith. Show yourself worthy of our trust. Heighten our hope for your glory and our joy. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Timing. Verse 3. Chapter 56 of Isaiah. Let not the foreigner who's joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. So we've got these two groups, foreigners, those outside Israel, 
that are not only non-native Israelites, but they're not here written as sojourners. A sojourner was a once foreigner who's come in and has fully become an Israelite. If you're a guy, that means you've been circumcised. You've, you've gained the identity marker. Here we're talking about foreigners that are not native Israelites, nor are they those that are treated as such. And yet the vision is that there's a day coming when foreigners will be built into the people of God. And not only that, eunuchs, who by their very nature are unable to sustain a name. Now this term eunuch, elsewhere it shows up and it doesn't mean what we think of as a eunuch, as a castrated person. It just means a leader. But here, as we're going to see in this context, it it seems to very much mean eunuchs. And so we've got to consider um, there's not many of them that we're aware of, at least that I'm not aware of today. And so what would the message of this be for the New Covenant age? But the timing is when eunuchs and foreigners who've joined themselves to the Lord would think their future participation in Yahweh's people is questionable. Now, both in Leviticus 21 and Deuteronomy 23, a eunuch is declared unable to participate in the communal worship. Very specifically, if there is a man whose testicles are crushed, it says. And it's not that God doesn't want worshipers from all over, it's that God is absolutely holy, and so he sets up pictorial representations of that holiness. A priest is not able to uh, have disability. He has to look pure. He has to be married to a virgin. He can't even be married to a widow. And all of these are in order to identify the absolute perfection of Yahweh who has not experienced curse, who only lives in the context of blessing. And so a eunuch, much like a child who's born of an illegitimate relationship, I would have been there. If I was born in Israel, I would have never been allowed says Deuteronomy, to ever go to the temple because of the context in which God brought me into the world. And yet, when we're talking about the new covenant, all of a sudden the nature of grace gets transformed. And those who were once not allowed in are all of a sudden allowed in. So the timing of this oracle, this mountaintop oracle, is a day when those foreigners who don't even become Israelites and eunuchs who wouldn't have been allowed to enter into the the communal praise and worship, the fellowship with the great king at the temple, all of a sudden are going... so, So it's a time when they're questioning, doesn't God care for me? Isn't there any hope for me? And this mountaintop text declares yes. So, let's look at it. The nature of this house of prayer and this day of hope. Number one, the Lord's going to exalt those with no ability or desire for physical procreation or marriage, giving them both lasting name and heritage. Look with me at verses 4 and 5. For thus says the Lord... So he starts out, don't let the foreigner speak this way. Don't let the eunuch speak this way. As if they can't have participation in in a relationship with God, or as if they can't have a future. For the reason they shouldn't talk this way is because the Lord has said to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. So, absolute desperation 
whether by choice or by birth or by punishment, you have an individual who's unable to procreate. And in such a context, there is within the community a natural looking down upon. You're not able to participate in the very first commandment given to man. Fill the earth, multiply and subdue it as an imager of God. Let, your, let the image of God working through your biology generate generations of image bearers. You're not able to participate in that. And all of a sudden you feel like less. And the testimony here is that God enters in to someone who cannot physically procreate and declares, you will have a name better than sons and daughters. That's amazingly hopeful. And very much counter Old Covenant. But when the mountain begins to enter in, and the kingdom of God begins to reorient reality, all of a sudden, sudden, someone who is bound to be single forever has hope in a future. I don't see singleness at all being uh, considered a blessing anywhere in the Old Testament. But all of a sudden in the New Testament, it is. You may not participate in the picture of marriage, husband and wife, Christ and His church, but you can enjoy the reality like everyone. And you gain the status of full sonship. Full daughtership in the household of God. Verse 6. That the Lord will draw foreigners into His sacred service at His holy mountain. A house of prayer for all peoples. Verses 6 and 7. So the foreigners will join themselves to the Lord. But the fact that they're called foreigners and not sojourners seems very significant because no foreigner, according to Exodus 12, was allowed to be part of the activity of the community. Only if they declared, I will be an Israelite, like Ruth the Moabite did before her, like Rahab the Canaanite did, and after both of them, like Uriah the Hittite did. They became full Israelites. Not native-born, but their children were as if they were native-born and counted as full Israelites, not foreigners. Now you're going to have a foreigner who somehow is able to join himself with Yahweh. And then it uses a priestly term. He's going to minister, to serve Him, to love the name of the Lord, embrace the name of the Lord, and, notice the plural here, To be His servants. So you'll recall, in chapter 40 through 53, servant occurs 20 times, always in the singular, with respect to both the servant people and the servant person. But then, in Isaiah 53, right in the very context of the suffering servant's death, a substitutionary death, where he bears the sins of the many, all of a sudden, What motivates him to die through his death is that he will see offspring. Jesus, who never had a physical wife, never had biological children, does have offspring. That's what Isaiah 53 declares. And those offspring, by faith, both Jew and Gentile, says Paul in Galatians chapter 4, have to be adopted into the family. No one is born into the family of God, even if you have believing parents. The journey into glory is single file. Every individual needing to be adopted by faith, and every individual having the opportunity to gain new birth certificates. This one was born there in Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, where Jesus is seated. All of a sudden, you have foreigners who are counted as servants. And from Isaiah 54 to 66, servants shows up 11 more times, but always in the plural. Always in the singular before that. Always in the plural after Isaiah 53. And it's the offspring of the servant who are now counted as his servants. And they're carrying out his ministry 
his mission on the earth. So how could such texts still show up in the Bible? My answer? But God. But God. Yes. So, thanks, John. Next, next uh, we move on. No, so, um, no, I think the Jews were envisioning an age of a new order. When God met Moses in Exodus 25 and took him up on the mountain and gave him a vision of the heavenlies, and he said, I want you to build on earth, the tabernacle, a model after what I show you in the heavens. And the vision, I believe, is, okay, what's on earth is a picture of something greater. And if a day comes when that what is greater actually becomes reality, actually comes to earth, the old order, this picture, will no longer be. Moses envisioned the day when there would be a prophet like him who would be of the level of, of a covenant mediator. No other, no other prophet in the Old Testament was a mediator. He was merely an enforcer of what Moses mediated. But they're envisioning a day when a, a prophet like <coughs> excuse me, Moses will rise and mediate a new covenant. After the present age has been destroyed through the exile, the destruction of the temple means something. And after it has been destroyed, God's going to raise up a new order. And Malachi is going to envision, in the one breath, the very last prophet of the Old Testament is going to say, keep the words of, my, of the law from my servant Moses. But he's also going to envision the day when a new Elijah and a new Moses are going to come. And the Lord, whom you seek, will all of a sudden return to his temple. And in doing so, he's going to move. Salvation history is going to shift from Abraham, who was told, go to the land and I'll make you a nation, singular, be a blessing so that through you all the nations will be blessed. Abraham is only a father of one nation all throughout the Old Testament. And they're anticipating, though, a day when a single offspring, a royal king in the line of Judah, will rise, and now through him, in his day, all the nations will be blessed. And when Abraham moves from being a father of a single nation, which includes Rahab the Canaanite, Ruth the Moabite, Uriah the Hittite, they become Israelites. This is envisioning a different period in history, at the fullness of time, at the climax of the ages, when the Spirit of God comes and encamps on a man. Not just not in a building, on a man. So that the Spirit of the Lord will rest on the King as if He is the temple. And people will be gathered to Him in that day. There's going to be a new order and a new law. And so I think the Jews didn't call... They didn't cast off Isaiah as a heretic, although many people didn't like him. Because he preached both immediate prophecies like the destruction of the northern kingdom and the destruction of Jerusalem, when those events happened, they could do nothing else but say, but recognize, indeed the words of Isaiah are from the Lord. And that meant everything else that he's talking about is true. We may not understand it, until that day comes, this is most likely part of the mystery. When you read in Ephesians chapter 3, and Paul talks about the mystery that has been revealed, namely, one new man, Jew and Gentile, the, the wall of division being broken down, and God making them one new man and, and bringing peace between foreigner and Jew. I think the Jews probably, originally, this would have been part of that book that would have been, even for the remnant, even for Isaiah, him not fully sure how it's all going to work its way out and what it's all entailing. And we now, though, on the other side of the cross, recognize that there's a bunch of foreigners 
gathered into the household of God, a house of prayer for all peoples, and now serving even as priests. The sense we have as a whole is that these were principally verbal prophecies first that were then written down later. That's the pattern that we see in Deuteronomy. The writing comes after the proclamation. And we have some evidence in the rest of the writing prophets that that's exactly how it happened as well. Because often, um, well, for example, yes, it, it'll say, these are the words that he proclaimed during the days of. As if it's reflective after the fact. Identifying um, they were preached before they were written. Verse 6. So the foreigners who joined themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to love the character of God. That's, it's not just, he likes how the letters are shaped and it looks really cool. No, this is, this is his full identity. And he's embracing, the foreigner is embracing who God is as gracious and merciful. Yahweh, Yahweh, a God gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Embracing such realities this foreigner, celebrating everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, who holds fast my covenant, we would have to have some extended discussion. I've done it at times in my, what am I in? Thirteenth um, year of teaching this class. We've talked about the Sabbath here and there. Um, and I have a vision of doing that more extensively in the future. But somehow, in this new covenant age, a foreigner is able to keep the Sabbath, and it honors the Lord. And what does that look like, this side of the cross, keeping the Sabbath? It's something that's not annulled, it's something that's transformed, I've argued. These I will bring, these foreigners, I will bring to my holy mountain. So in Isaiah 2, the nations will gather to Jerusalem. Who's in Jerusalem? Not just Yahweh who's working justice. He's, it's his king, his spirit-empowered king upon whom the very presence of God rests as if in coming to Jerusalem, they're coming to the king who is the temple. And he's the one who's working justice in the land. And he's brought peace so that no one will destroy and all the war implements are now garden tools and, and there's perfect peace and there's a new garden of Eden that is rising, a new sanctuary of God in which our people representing and reflecting and resembling God. They're at the holy mountain and God will make them joyful in his house of prayer. Their burnt offering, their sacrifice will be accepted on my altar it doesn't say their sin offering. It doesn't say their guilt offering. Once the first temple came, the sin offering and the guilt offering are the primary sin issues. No, this is focused on an expression of, of praise to God through the burnt offering, a whole burnt offering, and then other sacrifices, it simply says. Things like a fellowship offering. A thanksgiving offering, which the New Testament draws on and says our very deeds are like sacrifices to our God. These foreigners are going to be acting like priests, ministering to the Lord. And God will receive on His altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Now Jesus cites that text in the very context where all the people, the money changers in three of the Gospels are selling in the temple, and he knocks over all those tables and says, this is not what real worship is. My house shall be a house of prayer. 
What's striking, though, is that the foreigners are actually inside enjoying, even serving as priests. Verse 8, Yahweh commits to gather both outcasts, both the outcasts of Israel, but not only that, others. I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. He gathers the outcasts of Israel and gathers others. It reminds me of John 10 where Jesus says, I have sheep that are not of this fold. And behold, there will be one flock and one shepherd. John 10, 16. Or John eleven fifty two, where we read, It is better for you that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. And then we read, Caiaphas didn't say this on his own accord, but being a high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not only for the nation, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. He has sheep that are not of that fold, non-Jewish sheep that he still has to gather in, and that's what this text is anticipating. A holy mountain where God's presence is celebrated, and there are, it's as if we've gone back to Eden, so that Adam and Eve, who represented all humanity, it's now being fulfilled. True humanity, Jew, Gentile alike, re-ingathered back into the sanctuary presence of God. Like Revelation 2-7, to him who overcomes, whether it be foreigner or Jew, I will give him the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. I'm going to jump ahead over our text and go to the final mountaintop text in the book. Go to Isaiah 66 with me. I'm going to begin in verse 18, but that's what we're going to look at in focus way. But I'm going to jump us back all the way to verse 7 because it recalls some images that we've seen even this year of Jerusalem as the bride of God who enters into labor without pain. Because ultimately, the groom, the Messiah, bears the pain of curse in himself, and the two of them give forth offspring. But Jerusalem, she, verse 7, was in labor. She gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Who's heard of such a thing? Who's seen such, a th- such things? Shall a land be born in a day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? Oh yes, God can do such a thing. And He did that Friday and that Sunday 2,000 years ago. The representative Israelite undergoing the birth pains of the nation. The curse. He bore it upon Himself and God brought forth life through his suffering, so that the people, the bride, did not themselves have to suffer. And all of a sudden, Jerusalem has children. Verse 9, Shall I bring to the point of birth and not cause to bring forth, says the Lord? Shall I cause to bring forth? Shut the, shall I who cause to bring forth shut the womb, says your God? Rejoice, you servants, with Jerusalem, and be glad for her, all you who love The heavenly Jerusalem, who is our mother, rejoice with her in joy, all you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast, that you may drink deeply and delight from her glorious abundance. For thus says the Lord, behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. It's So you've got Jerusalem, we're thinking Jews. No, the nations, plural are now identified with this Jerusalem that has given birth to offspring. Spread out her tents, says Isaiah 54. Stretch out the sides of the tent. Extend her tent pegs because the offspring is more numerous than could have ever been dreamed. And they possess the nations. As one 
whom her mother comforts, so I shall comfort you, O servants. This is now masculine plural. You shall see, your heart shall rejoice, your bones shall flourish like the grass, and the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants, and he shall show his indignation against his enemies. So there's the enemies, and there's the servants of God, and the servants of God are the children of this offspring between the lamb and his bride, the suffering offspring of Isaiah, the suffering lamb of Isaiah 53, and the bride of Isaiah 54, now giving offspring that includes foreigners and Jews alike who are adopted into the family. For behold, the Lord will come in fire to indignation against his enemies. He'll come in fire in his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger in fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment, by sword with all flesh, all flesh. And those slain by the sword shall be many. Those who sanctify and purify themselves, self-reliant, self-indulgent, self-dependent, they go into gardens, following one in the midst, eating pig's flesh and the abomination of mice. They shall all come to an end together, declares the Lord. For, for, here's our timing, when Yahweh gathers nations and tongues, for I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming... The time is coming, Isaiah's envisioning it, to gather nations and tongues, to see a reversal of the Tower of Babel. Tower of Babel gave rise to 70 peoples, and God used one of them as the agent through whom he would bring his Messiah, so that blessing could come back to all 70. And now, Tongues spread all over the planet. Languages and nations from all over. It's time for God to do an ingathering of them. And they shall come and they shall see my glory. So you've got this vision of 70 families spread all over the planet. All over, and right in the middle is the the Lamb Lion King in Jerusalem. It's time to gather, and I will set a sign among them. Now, this sign is different than the word that we read about in Isaiah 11, where the Messiah will be raised up as a banner, but it may point to the same thing. He's going to set a sign among them, and then from them I'll send survivors. So the message is, I'm going to destroy the enemies of the world, but there's going to be survivors. And so the survivors are from the nations, not just Jews, but the Jews I think would be included, but survivors from the nations who will shape a core, who will in turn spread out and become missionaries to bring an ingathering of many. So there's a two-step process. There are survivors of an initial judgment, and my sense is that even though... So reading this in light of the future... This would be part of the mystery that is now revealed in light of the cross. At the cross, God judges people from every tongue and tribe, language and nation. In Christ, Christ bears our guilt. He bears our punishment. And there are survivors at Pentecost from every tongue and tribe and nation on the planet who all of a sudden are commissioned from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, to reach out and bring in the nations. And it's been a 2,000-year mission so far. I will set a sign among them in verse 19, I'll send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pol, Lud, who draw the bow, to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands far away that have not heard of my fame or seen my glory. 
And they shall declare, these survivors will declare the glory, God's glory among the nations. And they, these survivals, these survivors will all of a sudden bring in all of your brothers from all the nations as an offering. The individuals will, will be like an offering to the Lord. They'll come on horses and chariots and litters and mules, on dromedaries. Where are they going to come? To my holy mountain, Jerusalem. Says the Lord. And then he contrasts this group with Old Covenant Israelites. That's not who we're talking about. We're talking about a new community made up of remnant from the nations who are now the people of God, the servants of God, the offspring of God, and they're compared with Old Covenant Israelites. Just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord, so too will these survivors from the nations bring in the individuals, as if each one is a special offering to the Lord. And some of them, could mean all, some of them also I will take for priests and Levites. So they've gathered them in to the very presence of God, to the person of God, and some of them are going to serve like as if they've become a new kingdom of priests in the presence of God. This is how Isaiah is ending his book. Then notice what he says. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain forever, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. He's just talked about the nations coming in, and because the nations have gathered to God in Jerusalem, it's proof that the offspring of Israel will remain. All of a sudden, offspring is very clearly not Jews alone. And it's not even all Jews. It's only those who've surrendered, who have seen God's glory and and reveled in His name. They are the offspring of God. They're the offspring of the Messiah in Isaiah 53. They're the offspring of the New Jerusalem in Isaiah 54. They are the servants. They are the offspring. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come and worship. Some from the nations will gather and see God's glory. Yahweh will raise a sign. Yahweh will send out survivors to gather the nations to Jerusalem, some of whom will in turn serve as priests and offspring forever. The ultimate result at the end God's judgment on the world. It's interesting how he ends his book with warning. And they shall go out, these multi-ethnic offspring of God. They shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence of all flesh. The final mountaintop text in Isaiah picturing what Jesus portrays as hell. He cites this text and applies it to the eternal fire and eternal torment for all the enemies of God. So now let's go back to Isaiah 65. Timing. What I'm wanting us to see is that this vision of the mountain throughout Isaiah... I don't think there's been any mention of an intermediate millennial period. It's had either the already or the not yet. It's envisioned the consummation and it's envisioned what it's like when the Messiah has come. I don't think Isaiah necessarily envisioned a separation between the first and second comings. He knew there was going to be time, but did he envision 2,000 years? I don't get that sense. But he's envisioning a new creation that Paul says has already started. 
Behold, we are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. This vision of I will make a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall be remembered, shall not be remembered or come to mind. Verse 17. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy, and her people to be a gladness. This the timing that we're focused on is the day when he creates the new creation which seems to be the same as the new Jerusalem. That the mountain is Jerusalem, and the vision of the future throughout Isaiah is that the mountain is what we have in existence. When we look at these seven texts, they're talking about the same reality. And it is the future reality. It's not, I don't think that there is a new creation with a city called Jerusalem in it, but rather that the new creation is Jerusalem. It is the mountain. That Remember, the mountain in, in Genesis was the waters flowed from it. This is where God's sanctuary was. It was the garden. Yet the vision was always that that garden would be ever-expanding. Adam and Eve called to guard and serve this turf that God placed them in, yet the vision was, as they fill the earth, they have offspring, they create new kingdom families, it creates a kingdom community, all of a sudden, the domesticated area, the tilled area, the garden would be ever-expanding. And as it does, the presence of God through the images of God, humans, in God's temple, we are the image that are supposed to be in God's temple, the image would all of a sudden be putting on display through every man, woman, boy, and girl in ever-increasing ways the the greatness of God. People would be imaging God so that the glory of God would all of a sudden fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. This vision is that the mountain of God, the sanctuary temple of God, which starts with a person, being the temple, or a sprout, a root. He starts and a garden begins. And all of a sudden we identify with him and then we begin to bear fruit. We begin to be the garden. And it expands from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. He's shaping a people who are his image. And this is why when we get to Revelation 21 and The messenger says, come, John, let me show you the bride of God. And I went out and I saw a city, a city that is in the shape of a perfect cube. And there's no temple in the city because the cube represents the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies, then the holy place, and then a holy place, all the temple. Two quadrants, perfectly even, the altar there, the Ark of the Covenant here. The only cube in the Old Testament is the Holy of Holies. So, it seems as though the reason there's no temple is because the temple as a whole distinguished what was holy from what was common. And there were stages of holiness. But now, the vision is that in the future... Jerusalem, which has become the Holy of Holies, the presence of God hovering over the entire city, and all the remnant are gathered to the city, and this is where everyone lives, and yet it's expanded. Stretch out your stakes. It's filled everything that we would call new creation. Let's look at the text. First off, the nature of this vision, the former days will be no more, Burden will no more be burdensome, but should instead be replaced with joy. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. Verse 17. Verse 18. I create Jerusalem to be a joy, and her people to be gladness. 
Yahweh is going to take great joy in His people. That's what's part of this vision. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. Then at the end of verse 19, the people will no more mourn. No more shall there be heard in it the sound of weeping or the cry of distress. It's not that there will be some, but not much. There will be zero. Now for the moment, jump over verse 20 and just go to verse 21. The people will enjoy success in their labors. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They'll plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They'll not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of, ESV says a tree, Hebrew says the tree. Wonder which one. The tree shall be the days of my people, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, sounds like Genesis 3, or bear children for calamity, sounds like Genesis 3, for they shall be, all of them, the offspring of the blessed Yahweh, and their descendants with them. Verse 24, Yahweh will answer before they even pray. That's amazing. Before they call, I will answer. While they're even starting to get the words onto their tongue, I will hear. And there will be perfect peace. The wolf and the lamb will graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. Dust shall be the serpent's food. And they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. This whole text, it ends with what Isaiah 11 pictured. The lion and the lamb next to each other and they shall no longer hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Those are the days of the Messiah. And Paul quotes Isaiah 11 verse 10 and says, It's happening today. That's why I'm engaged in Gentile ministry. It's already started. It's not that this is portraying a future age still to come fully. No, it's an age that's already been inaugurated in light of the way that Paul's reading Isaiah 11, which is quoted in Isaiah 65.25. But then the text opens in verse 17 and 18, identifying this is a new creation text. It's not a millennium text. It's a new creation text. It's a new Jerusalem text, which is already, but is also not yet. Now, I've got, I think, ten more slides that focus on verse 20. And I'm just going to encourage you to... Next week, you can, if you want to know, here's what the slides are about. Uh, one second. Here's what the slides are about. No. The slides are about seven reasons why Isaiah 65:20 should be read figuratively, not describing actual death. Or if I can be more specific. Greg Beale provides six reasons why Isaiah 65.20 should be read figuratively addressing the eternal irreversible reality of no untimely death in the everlasting new creation and not describing actual death in a temporary reversible millennium. And then I provide a seventh argument. So, I just encourage you if you want to read that, because I'll just read it. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old. And ESV says the sinner, if anybody has an NIV or an Holman Christian Standard Bible, you'll see it doesn't even mention a sinner at all. Because sinner by its nature means miss the mark. And so many translators, including those with the NIV, think that it says, and one who will miss 
a hundred years old shall be accursed, meaning he never makes it to, if, if someone doesn't make it to a hundred years, it'd be as if he was accursed. So many people read that and simply say, oh, well, I know it feels like new creation, but it can't be the eternal new creation because all of a sudden it's talking about people dying, right? And so I've got seven reasons why I think that's not how we're supposed to read it. And you can go there to find out. And we're not done. I've got one more week in Isaiah. And my hope next week is I hope you can come hungry just to be reminded and to gain fuel for preaching to yourself about how Isaiah in 66 chapters portrays Jesus. I just want to summarize from Isaiah 1 all the way up to Isaiah 66, what are the ways that he talks about this spirit-empowered arm of the Lord, servant, child king? How does he portray him? What, what, is, what, is he, what titles does he use for him? I just summarized some of them. But I just want us to be refreshed and reminded this is a book about nurturing hope in good news, in the gospel. And I just want, I want to end our time together letting our hearts soar in what the good news is already and not yet. Next week. Thank you. Quick question. Oh, so Adrian has asked what's coming after. Great question. Right now my plan is to take 13 weeks, one week per chapter of how to understand and apply the Old Testament. So I'm going to take a 500-page book and try to take each chapter and just give one week, 45 minutes per chapter, to help give you a, a global vision for approaching our Bible to read not simply for distance, but also for depth. And then if you want more, you can read the book. But that, that's my focus. Uh, we're going to spend the rest of the semester there, and then it'll, it'll bleed over into, into next fall. So, Lord willing, see you next week. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi. Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at www.bcsmn.edu. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at www.jasonderoshi.com. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for his glory in Christ.